Elizabeth Lassour was a very faithful housewife. She was married to a medical doctor in France in the late 19th, early 20th century. She lived a very simple life, but she was a very faithful woman. In her mid-twenties, she was stricken with some, I don't know the disease, but some sort of pretty terrible, horrible disease that left her sick for the next 10 years of her life, very painfully so, until she died. When she was alive, she was a woman of great devotion, especially to Our Lady and to the Rosary. She visited the baths at Lourdes to try to be healed and cured of her infirmities. Her husband, who was a militant atheist and a communist, hated God with all of his heart, was bemused at how she was constantly healing and asking God for his intercession to no avail. In fact, he was angered by it. After she passed away, he was so angry, he decided that he needed to write a book or some sort of series of articles about how much of a hoax the baths at Lourdes were. Because here his wife was, this wonderful, beautiful woman who had never done anything wrong to anyone, who suffered this horrendous illness and death. And upon getting to the shrine in the grotto there at Lourdes, Felix Lesseur turned the corner, saw the statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, fell to his knees, returned to the sacrament of confession after many years away, and eventually became a Dominican priest. He was the healing that his wife had been praying for. So often, though, we think that the healing that God is going to bring is the healing that I need for my particular problems that are in front of me. But as we look at the gospel, the healing that Jesus brings, whether they be from infirmities or driving out demons, are a foretaste of what Jesus' great work of healing is, the reconciliation of God and humanity. That when Jesus does this, he is showing us his mighty power. That Jesus has absolute dominion and authority over all that exists. So that we, believers, can know and can trust with great faith and devotion that the healing that will lead to my ultimate happiness, my conversion of heart, mind, and life to union with Jesus Christ, is not only possible, but is on going. But one of the things we need to recognize is the challenges that are in front of us. We cannot escape them. That reading from the first, re- uh, from the, from, so, excuse me, from the book of Job is quite depressing, isn't it? I shall not see happiness again, the word of the Lord. Uplifting and inspiring, isn't it? We don't think of that oftentimes, that kind of drudgery, that kind of frustration, that kind of anger and and hostility toward God in the scriptures. But the wisdom literature of which Job and the Psalms and the Proverbs are a part show the fullness of the depths of our human emotional experience in relationship to God. He says at the beginning, is not man's life on earth a drudgery? And the answer is yes. All of us toil. We hear this in the very first pages of Genesis. The punishment for sin is that what? We have to earn our living by the work of our hands and the sweat of our brow. That life is going to be hard. But what we end up doing is we posit this on God or on other people. You're the problem. 
Or we think, well, there's no way God could be a good God if there are all of these terrible things in the world. But as one of the greatest, or I shouldn't say the greatest, probably the most popular philosopher of our time says, I'm the problem, it's me. Taylor Swift is on to something there. She really is. That's the only lyric of hers that I know. Because there's something about that that is true. When we look at the world and we think of anything and everyone else but me as the problem, it's toil, it's drudgery, it's hopeless. But when we actually embrace the fact that I am the problem, we can start to be free. We heard from St. Paul in that second reading from the first letter of the Corinthians, the joy that he has in sharing the gospel. We also know that at a point in his life, Saul was trying to kill people and the church. So long as the problem was these Christians and other people, Saul was a slave. But when he recognized, I need to change in relationship to this Jesus, he became free. His life was exponentially more difficult. He was shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, abandoned. And yet, he is excited to preach the gospel because he realizes in embracing his own brokenness, he says it in one part of his letters where he says that I am the sinner. I've been trying to push these things away. I've asked the Lord to to be relieved of these pressures, to be relieved of these temptations, and yet they're still there. How many of us can sympathize with that, can empathize with that? And yet he's free. Because in embracing and recognizing his need for conversion, he experiences that and desires with all of his heart to share it with other people. And so in 10 days, we're going to be starting Lent. And Lent is a period of conversion for us. Lent is going to be a period where we come to recognize more deeply my need for conversion. And so as you look over these next 10 days into your hearts and start to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you calling me to do this Lent? Look at your life and say, where am I the problem? Where is my bad behavior, my bad relationships, my unwillingness to forgive, my sinfulness? Where is that a problem? And what can I do positively to address that? But not only to address it positively and proactively, but to invite someone into that with me. And my encouragement to you today, because we see the example of Jesus in the gospel, is to seriously consider making at least 15 minutes of silent mental prayer every day one of your goals for Lent. Let me put it this way. If you get to the end of Lent and you haven't had a piece of chocolate, but you haven't prayed every day, Your Lent really isn't that meaningful or important in terms of your relationship with Jesus. It could be, but probably isn't. But if you give the Lord 15 minutes, each and every day, He will change your life. One of the great spiritual writers of our time is not Taylor Swift, but is a priest by the name of Father Jacques Philippe. And he has an extraordinary book on prayer called Time for God. And he says this about those initial steps of going off as Jesus did in the gospel to spend time with God in silence. This is very important, he says. When we start doing mental prayer, we are not saints. And the more we do it, the more we realize the fact 
People who never come face to face with God in silence are never really conscious of their infidelities and faults. But when we pray, such things become much more obvious. That may give rise to a lot of suffering and the temptation to stop praying. We should not be discouraged at that stage, but should persevere, convinced that perseverance will obtain for us the grace of conversion. In the gospel, we heard from St. Peter that everyone is looking for Jesus. It's an invitation for us as we prepare for these days of Lent ahead to look for Jesus in silence so that we can be trained, so that we can be converted, renewed, changed, and so that the challenges in front of us, instead of being hopeless, instead of being drudgery, are the means by which our salvation is being worked out. Step into that with Jesus. Step into that with hope and with trust so that he can change and renew and heal your life. Felix Lesur only, or Elizabeth Lesur, excuse me, never got to see the healing that her prayers wrought. But she prayed every day, trusting that Jesus would bring that healing. That inspiration is so powerful for each and every one of us. To give our hearts to the Lord, to trust that he will bring about in his time and in his will the healing that we all seek for our relationship with God and for those in our lives. Because we are made for greatness. We are made for unity with God. Give him that time, open your hearts, and let him change your life as he did to Felix Lesur when he saw the Grotto of Lourdes. May it be so for you when you come and bow before Jesus and kneel in prayer in the next days and weeks.